0: Welcome to the Running Explained podcast. I'm Elizabeth, a marathoner, running coach, and answer seeker. When I became a new runner at the age of 29, I had so many questions, but I had no idea where to go for answers. So with Running Explained, I'm here to answer all your running questions to help make you a better, smarter, faster runner. There's no question too simple and no topic too complex. So let's get started. Hello everybody. Welcome to the very first episode of the running explained podcast that is actually being recorded as a podcast and not stolen from IGTV live audio that I recorded several weeks ago. I'm really excited that you're here. I'm very excited to be talking into a microphone instead of a front facing camera, although I miss seeing all your pretty faces as you join, but you know what? It's going to be okay. I got some unbelievable questions this week and I answered a bunch of them in my stories and I picked a few to discuss in depth that I think are really important. Not to say that all of your your questions are important, of course, but there were a couple standouts this week that I think are really interesting to talk about more in depth and we're just going to dive right in. The first question today is the difference between a neutral shoe and a stability shoe. So talking about different kinds of running shoes, a neutral running shoe versus a stability or motion control running shoe. So you kind of have to understand how your gait works and how your foot works when you run in order to understand the difference between a neutral shoe and a stability or motion control shoe. When you run, your foot hits the ground and it's not just like a straight kind of forward and back. You're, as your foot rolls through the motion, you have everybody has a degree of pronation, which is some lateral movement, and you can have over pronation and under pronation, which is technically called supination. Over pronation is probably the most visible and recognizable, and it's when your foot rolls excessively inwards and it kind of seems like the ankles are collapsing inwards and I think the technical threshold for overpronation is when your ankles roll inwards at a degree greater than 15 degrees and then likewise on the on the other side supination over supination is when your ankles roll outwards to a degree that's greater than 15 degrees And like I said, everybody pronates to some degree, and it has to do with your biomechanics, just the way that your body is built. It has to do with how strong the different structures in your body are. So if you have exceptionally weak stabilizing muscles, that might allow a greater degree of pronation and excessively pronating either way can cause issues you know, down the road or the more time that you spend on your feet, right? It can lead to ankle or a knee discomfort. Uh, it can, you know, arch pain, all sorts of things. So what a neutral shoe does is it, it doesn't really do anything in terms of correcting that excessive uh, roll through motion from a, like an inwards or an outwards. It kind of just guides your foot through your natural Gait pattern, but doesn't try to force it to stay in neutral. It just is. And just as an aside, your degree of your arch height, so how high your arches are, is uh, unrelated to excessive pronation. A lot of runners think if they have very, very high arches that will make them an over pronator. And those aren't necessarily related, just to let you know. So don't assume that because your foot is shaped one way or the other, that you need one type of shoe or the other. Go to a running shoe store, have a virtual gait assessment, have an in-person gait assessment, have a person who knows about feet and running and running shoes assess your foot, how you walk, how you run, and suggest the best shoes for you. So a neutral shoe is just that, like it it just kind of lets your foot do its thing without trying to correct it or guide it in one way or the other. And it used to be that stability shoes, which we'll talk about in a second, were really, really popular back when um, we used to think that our bodies required a lot of correction and like stability and help. And that's when... It was very popular to recommend that people run in stability shoes and knee braces and like running's bad for you. So you have to give your body as much support as possible. Good thing we've moved away from that. Neutral shoes are by far the most commonly available shoes. Now they're the most popular type of running shoe. And you can have neutral shoes and stability shoes with a wide variety of other characteristics. But what neutral and stability and motion control refers to is just the degree to which Your pronation is mitigated, guided, stabilized by the materials in the running shoe. So neutral shoe, just that, kind of just lets your foot do its thing, just lets it naturally roll through whatever your foot's going to do. A stability and motion control, so the degrees are, like a neutral shoe is neutral, and then you have a stability shoe or a light stability shoe, which does some degree of stabilizing, and then on the, on the kind of outer spectrum is a motion control shoe. And what stability and motion control shoes do is correct using materials in the shoe that are stiffer or shaped a certain way, correct, or try to minimize your body's naturally, natural urge to pronate, under pronate, over pronate to that degree. So uh, how it does this is it uses the shoes use in in most cases stiffer materials on the outer edges of the shoe. And what that does is as your foot lands, it the stiffer materials basically help act as safeguards, like bowlers when you know bumpers when you go bowling, to not let your foot do what it's trying to do, which is over pronate or under pronate, and it helps it keep it in its own lane, you know, along that center plane. It helps it keep that excessive motion, that side to side rolling motion happen. And stability shoes do that, like I said, they stabilize. Motion control shoes are much um, more rigid, literally, they're more rigid for severe cases of under or over pronation when your foot needs like a lot of help to keep it going in the direction it's supposed to go without excessively rolling from a side to one way or the other. Like I said, everybody pronates to some degree and many runners with mild cases of over or under pronation, uh, can, address that with simple stabilizing and mobility exercises in their hips and their ankles and their posterior chain. But of course, every body is different. And some people do need to run in stability shoes for the most comfort, especially as you get up to longer distances, as fatigue sets in. uh, It can be helpful to have a shoe if you're the type of person whose gait tends to break down as you fatigue. It can be helpful to have a shoe to kind of help guide the shift to, to correct your foot when it wants to get floppy from side to side. And like I said, this is something that a running shoe professional, a running store professional will be able to guide you with about choosing the right shoe for you. Most runners are fine in a neutral shoe. Many new runners come across common new running injuries like uh, soreness in their knees or in their shins or in their ankles or, you know, those common kinds of like, oh, I just started running and now my knees hurt. Do I need a stability shoe? Statistically, unlikely. That's probably just your body adjusting to this new high impact activity that you've introduced to your life and not having the strength especially in your stability muscles to help support your running. So common strengthening exercises for working on your stabilizing muscles. It's all very similar. I mean, I feel like you may have heard this before from me, but you can do body weight or resistance bands exercises like clamshells, donkey kicks, fire hydrants, dead bugs, bird dogs, leg lifts, um, anything that helps your core is also really great. It's basically, we want to work on all of the lateral stability, those little muscles that, you know, not our hamstrings, not our quads, um, but other muscles in our posterior chain that help our body run correctly and efficiently, but don't necessarily get as much love. And those are really kind of the unsung heroes of helping us prevent injury And they can do a lot if you have a strong, stabilizing muscle system to help work with you, that will go a long way to helping prevent or correct any minor pronation issues. The other thing to keep in mind is that for running shoes in general, the more stuff that you add to the shoe, the heavier it's going to be. For most people, this is not really a problem, but like I said, for stability and then motion control shoes, which have much rigid, more rigid materials, which tend to be denser, they tend to weigh a lot more or more than a neutral shoe would. And you might find fatigue setting in faster if you're running in a motion control shoe over long distances, just because it's heavier. It's just something else that your body has to carry with it. Because of course, running is a weight bearing exercise. That's, again, it's not a reason not to get a motion controller stability shoe if you need one. It's just something to be aware of. Like, no, you can't have a Nike Vaporfly Next% Percent in a motion control shoe uh, because it's just the materials way too much. And one of the benefits of a fancy shoe like that is that it is very, very light. This next question is actually going to be a bit of a case study. So the original question was, I've been running for a while and my heart rate is always high, but my resting heart rate is pretty low. Should I ignore? As in, should I ignore my running heart rate being high because of other metrics that indicate I'm in fairly good health, like having a low resting heart rate? I reached out to this person and I was like, okay, tell me more. Like, let's put some numbers behind what you're actually asking me about. And here is what I discovered. So this person is running about 20 to 30 miles a week, and their easy pace is between 9 30 and 1030 minutes per mile. And when they're in that pace range, their heart rate tends to be in the 150, you know, 159, 160, and sometimes all the way up to 175 beats per minute. However, they did say that during hard races. So the end of 5k races, when you're really putting the pedal to the metal and gunning all out, they, their heart rate does tend to get pretty high as well and tends to get right up around 200 beats per minute or a little over maybe 202 beats per minute when they're, you know, sprinting it into the finish. Now there's every, again, every body is different, but The parameters this person has described having a maximum heart rate of around 200 and having a low resting heart rate of between 43 and 50 beats per minute, which is very, very normal for runners. Runners tend to have slightly lower resting heart rates in general population because we are so cardiovascularly strong. So this person is describing an exceptionally normal range of heart rate. So, you know, resting heart rate 43 to 50 when you're sleeping or in a very relaxed position, and then a maximum heart rate of around 200 when you're gunning it in to the finish line at the end of a 5K race. Their question was specifically about easy pace. When they're running at their quote unquote easy pace of 930 to 1030 minutes per mile, their heart rate is high. And I would agree that based on how heart rate zones are calculated, this person is not running in their easy heart rate zone when they're running at what they describe as an easy pace. And I asked, and yes, agreed that this conversation, this was a conversational pace, that running at this, in that pace zone, allowed them to chat with friends during a run. I would say, however, though, that it doesn't really matter because you're not in your easy zone. There is nobody on earth whose easy zone includes a heart rate of 175 beats per minute. That's threshold for most people. That's lactate threshold. That is that is too high. That is firmly firmly outside of what your easy zone is. And that is why I recommend that we guide our easy days by heart rate and not by pace. And in general, your easy heart rate zone is 75% or below of your maximum heart rate. So if your max heart rate is 200, your easy threshold is 150 beats per minute, right? This person's 930 to 1030, quote unquote, easy pace is not their easy pace this person is running too fast on their easy days. And it sucks. I get it. I mean, this person specifically described running with friends and all of that. And I I entered, of course, there's a huge social component to running with friends, to being able to keep up with friends. However, if you're in 160 plus territory, you are not in your easy zone and you need to slow down until you are. The good thing is this person has plenty of real estate pace wise to slow down. You know, if they're not saying I'm running 14 minutes per mile, and my heart rate's 175. What do I do? If that were the case, I would suggest including walking intervals until your aerobic system has caught up with your ability to sustain a run, a running pace while your heart rate's in your easy zone. But this person can ha- easily slow down to 1030 or 1130 minutes per mile to really benefit from the easy zone benefits. The tough thing about questions like this is that it's really hard to prove a negative, right? So clearly this person has, you know, found a groove running success, is running 5 Ks at 7:30 pace, which is nice and speedy. And they seem to be doing fine. and the question was more of a technical one, a technical question about, okay, but I'm doing this, however, technically I'm outside of my easy zone on my easy runs. Does it matter? And in the short term, it may not matter. And it's, like I said, it's hard to prove a negative. It's hard to prove that if you'd been doing it the other way this whole time, that things would be different, but it is important to actually run at your easy pace on easy days. And an easy pace is not a pace. Your easy zone is a heart rate or an effort range that is in your true aerobic building, easy endurance building zone. The concern when we run too hard on our easy days is not that it's going to do immediate damage today or tomorrow, but with running, everything is cumulative, right? So the concern long-term, you will not be building up your aerobic capacity to the degree that you would have if you had actually been running in your easy zone this whole time. And when we run in that, and it really is a physiological dead zone where it's too hard to be easy, but it's not hard enough to be actual speed work or a workout. What we're doing is we're working our body a little bit harder than it's able to easily recover from and we're not getting as many of the benefits as we would get if we were in our easy zone. And if we do that consistently, it's, it's easy to overtax ourselves and plateau or cause injury or burnout. And that's the danger of running too fast in your easy zone consistently. And like I said, you can get away with it for a long time if if you're okay with getting away with things but know that you are shortchanging yourself by spending too much time in that too hard to be easy zone and there are some risks that come along with spending too much time in that zone as well i mean if your primary goal for running is to spend time with your friends By all means, go and run at a pace that you are with your friends and is conversational. There are massive benefits to that sort of activity, whether or not you're in your precise easy zone. I understand that. I'm not saying that you shouldn't run with your friends, but if you do have goals for running longevity, for increasing your ability, for getting faster, for staying uh, healthy and watching those easy times get easy paces get faster and those race times get faster spending a lot of time in your actual true easy zone is going to it's going to help you actually get there not spending too much time in that weird dead zone when your heart rate is 160 to 175 that is definitely not easy territory so this person also had a concern about and I I have to say, this is not the only question I get about people asking if they are cardiac anomalies, right? My heart rate is always really high when I run. My heart rate is just always gets really high whenever I run. Well, you are special. We are all special. You statistically are not that special. If your heart rate is consistently too high when you are on a quote unquote easy run, if you say, I went for an easy run, but my heart rate was 165. And it always is really high, no matter what pace I'm going when I run. That means your aerobic system is underdeveloped to the point where you have a gap between your ability to stay in your true easy zone and Below that is walking and above that is faster race stuff. The weird thing is a lot of runners build up enough endurance, kind of a veneer of endurance to be able to race fairly successfully and to make progress at race distances like the 5k and the 10k or a 10 mile race without ever having to do a lot of work in their easy zone and build up their aerobic capacity in the correct way. They get away with it because you know, they're focused on the results. They have made a lot of progress based on where they started. And it's not something that they even necessarily think about. If you are the kind of person who can run a two hour half marathon, but cannot keep your heart rate in the 140s without walking, you have an underdeveloped aerobic capacity. An underdeveloped aerobic capacity is going to limit your ability to become faster in general, and it's going to limit your ability to be successful over longer distances when your endurance is the most important thing you have going for you. If you are plateauing at longer distances, kind of no matter how much speed work that you do or how many goal pace miles you put in, you may have an underdeveloped aerobic capacity. And... Going back to spending time in your true easy zone can be frustrating and humbling and scary and kind of something that might piss you off because you're used to running certain paces and now you're telling me, wait, I have to go back and I might have to walk part of my quote unquote easy runs. Like, are you nuts? That's insane. I'm a runner, not a walker. Well, you're a runner who has an underdeveloped aerobic capacity and you need to address that in order to become a more more well-rounded runner to become better at all the systems of running that you have available to you. And I understand, like I said, it's frustrating and it's not an overnight process, but it actually happens more quickly than you think. If you genuinely dedicate the next two to three months to staying truly easy on your easy days. And I genuinely mean easy. And for most people, that's 145 beats per minute and below on their heart rate. Some of you can get away with 150 and below, but don't go above 150 as an average on your easy runs. You will see the benefits. You will see your pace increase while your heart rate stays the same. You will find yourself being able to run more miles without feeling like you're just exhausted after every run. You will find yourself able to do things that you wouldn't be able to do if you didn't have that easy base going for you. So my advice is pay attention to what your heart rate is telling you. And understand that you are not in your easy zone when you're at 160 and above for your heart rate. You're just not physiologically. And the benefits to slowing down and actually running at your easy pace on your easy days are myriad. They will make you a better runner. So sometimes we just need to swallow our ego, swallow our pride and do it. Like I said, of course, there are many social benefits to running. If this is something that you can't run with that group because they're not that slow. First of all, everybody can benefit from slowing down a little bit. So unless you're hanging out with some real speed demons, it might be nice just to bring the pace down for everybody, make everybody kind of ease up a little bit. But if this is something that you need to do by yourself, that's also okay. So I understand that making any changes to our running routine can be uh, frightening sometimes, but like I said, do it for a couple months You will see the benefits. This is not a time-bounded thing. I'm not saying that like, oh, and after a couple months, you can go back to running in the 160 plus range. No, I'm saying after a couple months, you will be so convinced that this works that you will just keep doing this the rest of your life, keeping your easy days truly easy, saving your hard stuff for the hard days, and you will be convinced, I promise you. Our next question is, How can I notice if I have an unhealthy addiction to running or exercise? What an excellent question. This is a really wonderful question because I think it's important to understand internally what is dedication and what is obsession. So I will say you cannot tell what somebody's relationship with something is like from the outside, there are people who develop exercise or running addictions when they are running relatively low mileage, and you have people who have exceptionally healthy relationships with running who run extremely high mileage, and I think it, it's hard to tell from the outside. You cannot look at somebody and say, God, that person is addicted. They can't stop. It's really only for that person, their licensed mental health provider to actually work through. And it can be tough when you start running, Because you quickly realize that this is a time-intensive sport and something that if you are listening to this podcast, I assume that it's something that you absolutely love to do that takes up a lot of your time, that has a big part of your life, that you spend your time, your money doing, you go to races, you buy gear, you're friends with other runners, you spend time running and strength training and watching marathons on TV. Running is a huge part of your life. And for people who aren't runners, they may look at that and say, oh, my God, you're obsessed. There's something wrong. You need to cut back. Well, you know, like I said, you can't tell what is going on in somebody else's head just by looking at them. It may seem odd to some people what the rigors of training for long distance races are in that it requires six or seven days a week of running for those who of us who are experienced. If you're training for a marathon and running 80 miles a week, like yeah, you're gonna be running a lot. And somebody who isn't familiar might think that's very bizarre. But you have to remember it's context dependent too. Like they may look at you, their friend or neighbor and say, I think that person has a problem. But if you went over to them and said, oh, actually I'm an Olympian in training their perspective would totally shift, right? All of a sudden it's admirable that you're doing this much training. It's impressive. And your dedication is, wow, really amazing. I'm so impressed by how much you're able to do. Okay. So basically nothing's changed except what this person thinks. So again, their opinion about how much you're running is meaningless, but there can be situations in which a relationship with exercise or running can become unhealthy. And one of the ways to notice that is when, in general, how we define an addiction to something is when you continue to do it despite the negative consequences of doing that thing, right? So, for drugs or alcohol or gambling, or it's very easy to understand, like a person who is addicted to gambling continues to gamble despite having lost everything. They can't stop gambling. And it becomes an obsession. It becomes a compulsion. It becomes something that's out of their control that they probably don't even derive pleasure from anymore, but they can't stop doing it. So despite the negative consequences, exercise and running can be complicated because often there are other things involved, like your relationship with your body, your relationship with food, and it becomes very messy sometimes to understand, is this normal or is this crossing a line where this might not be serving me very well? So, okay, you're asking, so what does that look like? What does it look like when a relationship with running or exercise starts to veer into, maybe I should talk to somebody about this territory? One of the kind of criteria for exercise addiction is that if you miss a workout, you get anxious, depressed, irritable, angry, that sort of thing. Now, I have to say, as somebody who has done several marathon training cycles, that missing a workout makes me anxious, depressed, irritable, and angry. Uh, I don't know that that's necessarily the best criteria to, to judge all of your relationship with running on. Like, yes, if you are, of course, dedicated to training for a race and you have to miss a workout, maybe it's something like the weather was just absolutely terrible. Maybe you had a family emergency, just something happened in your life where you had to miss a workout, or maybe you were dealing with an injury, you had to miss a workout. And yeah, like that might piss you off a little bit. That's kind of normal, right? Um, But can you pick up and move on from that? Can you say, you know what, that sucked and I'm pissed off about that. I can't, I'm angry. I had to miss that workout. But I understand it's not one workout that makes or breaks my race day, and I'm gonna be angry about it for a little bit, and then I'm just gonna move on and just put it in the rearview mirror and act like it never happened. So being able to kind of temper that disappointment with a little bit of realism, yeah, it's okay to be angry, but is it something that that ruins or makes you unreasonably anxious? interferes with your ability to function, causes you such extreme anxiety or fear that you are unable to kind of cope with the rest of things. That that's kind of what one of the signs could be. Another one is if you continue to run despite being injured or being sick or being told you shouldn't run because you are dealing with some sort of medical issue. If you are compulsively drawn to continue running, despite being told not to, or knowing that you shouldn't, that's a problem. Now, many runners run through injury when they shouldn't many runners say, Oh, I have a I have a cold. Like, is it okay if I run like I'm supposed to run today? My advice to you, I will always err on the side of caution and tell you, look, I would much rather that you rest or take a really reduced day. If you have a workout on your schedule, but you have a bit of a cough, you know, I would say if you're going to run, don't do the workout, right? Hard workouts tank our immune system. They do because you're asking a lot of your body, right? So if you're already kind of in a low place, immune wise, going and doing a really hard workout or a long run or some sort of really taxing activity of any kind is not good for you can actually make things much, much worse. Same with injury. If you are injured in a way that you shouldn't be running and you continue to run on your injury, like you're going to make things worse. Understanding when that compulsion or that fear is driving you to do something that you know you shouldn't be doing in your heart of hearts, but you can't stop. That could be a sign that something might be amiss in your relationship with running. Something else is, like I said, we talked about the food and body image thing, the relationship that you're, you have with running and, and your body and with food, using running as a way to punish your body for what you've eaten, to consistently use running or exercise as a way to burn calories consistently extending your workouts or runs for longer than you're supposed to, right? So it's one thing to add a mile here or there if you feel really good or it's really nice out. It's another thing to basically do as much as you can every single time that you go out. I'm not necessarily talking about hard running. I, this can, you can do this with easy running too, right? Oh, oh, I, I should be doing more. I should be doing more. I should be doing more. Oh, it said six miles, but I'll run seven. Okay. it says seven miles, but I'm going to run eight. And you do that consistently. You do that all the time because you are, again, that a fear or anxiety or, or something that is driving you to do that consistently, always doing more, doing two-a-days, running doubles when you're not supposed to be or your training plan doesn't call for it or thinking like, oh, just get a quick run in. Um, These are all kind of signs. And like I said, you know, there are some kind of hallmarks of what traditional exercise addiction activities might look like. But where it really, really, really matters is how you feel about the things that you're doing. Are you being driven by... A fear or anxiety or a compulsion or obsession or an uncomfortableness or an itch inside your brain that's telling you to go do these things, and if you don't do them, you are so mentally uncomfortable that you can't, don't even know what to do your, with yourself. Right? That's the unhealthy part. It's one thing to be dedicated to work hard to get the miles in to do everything you're supposed to be doing. It's another thing to be driven by an internal force that almost feels out of your control to do these things, even when you know maybe you shouldn't be doing them. So again, it's not something that is for me to say, if you say, you know, do I have an addiction to running or exercise? I don't know. What do you think? That's really something that is for you to explore and consider and to understand that We can have relationships with things in our lives that go from healthy to unhealthy and back again. And I know it's been a hell of a year and we're all using coping mechanisms that we maybe didn't use before. And yes, if you have had an unhealthy relationship with exercise or running in the past, it doesn't mean that it's gonna be that way forever, but it is important to recognize when your relationship with things like running or exercise or food or drugs, or alcohol, or gambling, or whatever those things are, when they start to, to spiral out of your control, it's not even fun anymore. You're just doing it because something's driving you and you can't stop, right? If you are genuinely concerned about your relationship with exercise or anything else in your life, I, I urge you to seek mental health care. Uh, You can talk to therapists on Skype now just to get a professional opinion, to have ideas to bounce off somebody else who kind of knows maybe what they're looking for. And, you know, it's always good to talk to somebody um, because I feel and I have been in a lot of therapy. One of the best ways that therapy can help somebody is just helping you talk through things out loud and help you reach your own conclusions Just by saying it out loud to somebody else, you often go, oh, my God, and I have my answer. (laughs) So if you are struggling, I do urge you to seek out some professional care, even just a couple sessions. Uh, It could really help. All right, on to race day etiquette. This question is from a first time racer advice for my first race, any race day etiquette I should know. I will say I don't, I know of the COVID precautions that many races are taking, but I will speak broadly about just kind of what to expect from a race day. And, and then maybe what some of those COVID precautions might look like. So, races oh guys remember racing remember when we used to race all the time (laughs) i remember my first race and i had absolutely no idea what i was doing and i really wish that i had asked somebody or just um not been i was so afraid of looking like i didn't know what i was doing right like we all kind of posture in front sometimes like no i'm i'm totally supposed to belong here like i know what i'm doing i'll got this don't worry i'm cool Yeah. I had no idea what I was doing and that's okay. The more that I run, the more I realize that on most start lines, uh, there are always going to be a bunch of people who don't know what they're doing and that's okay. That's amazing. Welcome to running. Welcome to the sport. I am so excited to have new people at the start line every single time. It's okay to be new at something. We were all new at something at one point in general. The first thing you need to be concerned about is how you're going to get your race bib. Your race bib is what you wear on your body. They provide safety pins for the most part. You pin it to the front of your body. You cannot wear it on the back. You have to have it on the front of your body and visible so that they know you're allowed to run in the race and they don't pull you off the course by accident because they think you've jumped into the race without paying. Your race bib will also contain, for most races, it's your race bib has a little... Uh, strip on the back that is your timing chip. That is what records your location and calculates your race time. They have what are called timing mats, which are little, you know, tiny little speed bumps that you run over every so often that record your chip time. Uh, that's how you figure out, you know, when you cross the start line, when you cross your finish line, and make sure you didn't skip any of the race in in the middle parts. Some races do have their chip, t- their um, their chips on shoe dongles. I've seen those less and less recently. They're mostly on race bibs now, but you... Depending on the race, you may get a little dongle to attach to your shoe. So you pick up your race bib. Well, in COVID, uh, there might be more options now. In general, you do what's called packet pickup to get your race bib and any other materials that are, go along with the race, like your race t-shirt or any sponsorship materials. Usually there's some freebies in there, coupons from local businesses, maybe a free gel or two. That packet pickup is usually happens in the days before the race At larger races, they have what's called an expo. The race expo can happen in the days leading up to a race, and it usually happens in convention halls, and it's this giant convention with all booths of all, you know, sponsors and you can buy shoes and gear and special race gear for that race. You can buy insoles and sunglasses and there are, you know, hypervolts and just all these sponsors and booths that come in to try to sell you stuff at the race expo. For smaller races, that packet pickup might happen at your local, a local running store that's been designated, or it might happen the morning of the race. Or in addition to, you can usually do pack for smaller races. You can usually pick up your packet the morning of the race at a special table. Uh, in the age of COVID, I do know that mailing race packets has become more popular. So they will mail, sometimes mail your packet to you. But anyways, you're going to get your bib and some other stuff in advance of the race. Some larger races also do what's called a gear check. So you your race bib usually is, so it's a, a rectangle of kind of plasticky paper. On the bottom of your race bib, Maybe detachable little coupons for your race uh, your race day check bag and or some sort of post race freebie. And again, with COVID, I don't know that you know post race celebrations are that big of a deal. It used to be that you know most races had you could at least redeem your coupon for like a beer or a burger or whatever that racist thing was. So you might have some detachable coupons on your on your race bib. For your gear check, if, again, for larger races, you basically attach that little coupon to a bag. Sometimes they provide a plastic bag for you to do your gear check. This is definitely something that happens at larger races, marathon majors. You check your bag with the race officials and pick it up at the finish line, right? So if you have stuff that you want to have near the start line or have things that you want to have directly after the race is finished, and this is, again, more popular for larger races where you know there's so much going on and so much distance to cover and so many logistics that just to get out of the finish chute might be a you know, 400 meter walk. And then you have to go find your family who are a mile and a half away. So that is gear check. When you get to the start line, or I guess to the start area, there should be somebody on a loudspeaker kind of directing traffic, playing music, kind of giving you periodic updates about what to expect. Oh, 15 minutes to the start line, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There for larger races, you are often put into what are called corrals or sent off in waves. And I'll talk about the COVID waves in a minute, but usually they are called seated, which means that you had to submit proof of your race time or your ability to run at a certain pace beforehand. And then the faster runners are released first and the slower runners or runners who didn't provide a proof of time are released after that in their own waves in corrals. They will call, if there are corrals, they will call you to your corral. Once you're in your corral, you're kind of stuck there, (laughs) depending on, you know, they might line runners up um, behind you. There are some races where the corrals are parallel, as in they're next to each other. But for many races, the corrals are actually stacked on top of each other. So corral, you know, A would be the first corral, and then they kind of draw a line or put up a rope, and then they bring up the next wave of runners directly behind that one group. So once you're in your corral, you're kind of stuck. So if you have to pee, do it before you get into your corral. For other races, they may have a more informal kind of seed yourself system, where in the start shoot, it's not a closed corral. It's just kind of open, and they ask you to kind of place yourself where you think you might be. They ask the faster runners to go up front. Sometimes they'll have like poles with different paces going back to so like, oh, if you're going to be six minutes per mile pace here, and then the next pole is seven minutes per mile and the next pole is eight minutes per mile and the next pole is nine minutes per mile. So you can kind of seed yourself and say, okay, well, you know, my goal for this race is to maintain about nine minutes per mile. So I'm going to hang out near the nine minutes per mile pole um, and seed myself in the, in the shoot that way. In COVID times, they tend to do similar things to all of this. But much more spread out. So it's not a mass start where everybody is in the start shoot or the corrals together, squished in, and then they all go. It's usually done in very, very small waves of people. So like, yes, you are kind of still lined up or in the order that you would go in with speed. But you they may only release two to three to four, I don't know, how many, many runners at a time. So not everybody's crossing the start line at the same time. Everybody's going off in tiny, 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 tiny waves. And I have noticed that in general, you have to wear your mask up until you get into starting position. So you will need to either have a mask that you can dispose of, like a disposable mask, or be comfortable tucking your mask in to somewhere on your body. Maybe you have a flip belt or a, another a pack or a whatever it is carrying your mask with you for the duration of the race. And then putting your mask back on after you finish. So it's also okay to ask somebody, like, where do I go? What should I do? Where are the porta-potties? Usually for races, there are banks and banks and banks of porta-potties. Even if you don't have to pee, I recommend getting into line early because just in, in case you might have to, it's always better to, you know, have an empty bladder than a full one and say, God, you know, I really wish I would have peed, but now the line is so long, ah, it's not worth it. And then it kind of derails your whole race. Um, the other thing, it's not, it's not necessarily etiquette. Well, it's kind of etiquette. The etiquette about seating yourself and starting where you should. Um, some people are dicks and will go to the front of the start line no matter what, even if they are planning on walking the race. But In general, it's always an etiquette thing to correctly seed yourself if you're being asked to self-seed, right? So, you know, stick with your, roughly where you are in terms of your pace. You know, if you know that you're going to be on the slower side, then please, you know, be aware of starting up front because there are usually people at most races who are going to sprint out the gate and you don't want to get run over. The other thing to keep in mind is not an etiquette thing, but don't go out too fast nerves. Oh, your nerves are going to be going and people are going to be so excited and you are going to feel so good and fresh and adrenaline high. Please do not go out too fast. It might feel a little weird, especially as you start, you know, in a way with other people and they take off, right? And you're just kind of easing on into it. Uh, you don't want to go out too fast. You don't want your nerves to get the best of you. You don't want to burn out when you start your race. So when one way that people get into trouble when they race is that they start out too fast and they might think, oh, I'll just, you know, go out fast for the first little bit and just to, you know, keep the, get my legs turning over and keep going. But if you're going to do that, you have to then back the pace off, right? Like pretty quickly, like get out the gate, get your legs turning over, get into it. And then like with, like I said, within that 100 meters, like back off and try to find your race pace, your pace that you have decided you're gonna run this race at. For shorter distances, actually, I would say getting your feet up to speed in the first hundred meters is important, especially in those 5K races when getting up to your pace is like the most important thing you can do and then kind of hanging on for dear life. But especially for longer races, oh God, especially for the half and the full marathon, please, please, please settle into your race pace as soon as possible. And actually you might find it beneficial to start out a little slower than your race pace and warm yourself up and work on into that race pace. So that's kind of a, an overview of what to expect for a race and kind of a little, a little start line preview. Don't let the nerves get the best of you settle into your race pace, or even a little bit slower just to give yourself kind of a cushion. Um, and then just enjoy it. Have fun, have fun. Racing is really, really fun. There's something very different about running and racing with people versus the virtual races or time trials, solo time trials that I think we've all kind of begun to appreciate how special in-person racing is over this past year. This next question I thought was a really fascinating one, and it's somebody I reached out to again to get kind of get more information about their specific situation and why they're asking this question. And so The question is, how can intervals be leveraged to build aerobic capacity as well as speed? Let's define intervals because I I think it's really important that we all understand the definitions that we're working with. Intervals are any period of faster running interspersed with periods of slower running or recovery. You can do intervals that are purely easy running. You can also do intervals that are things like 5k race pace work or 200 meters or any sort of combination, uh, lactate threshold intervals. You can do 400 meter repeats. So an interval intervals are genuinely any period of faster running faster work interspersed with periods of slower work. This person was specifically asking about what they are currently doing is run walk intervals. So in response to this person's question, All they're doing is building their aerobic capacity, right? So I don't want you to think that intervals, doing intervals is purely the domain of speed work, right? If you are in a position aerobically where your current easy pace, easy effort zone includes run, walk intervals, by definition, being in your easy zone, easy effort, you're doing aerobic, you're building aerobic capacity. That is the goal of what you are doing in that activity, When you get up to interval workouts that include genuine speed work, if you're doing things at goal pace work, you know, marathon goal pace, lactate threshold pace, uh, VO2 max work, any sort of, you know, I'm not going to say actual speed work, right. Where you are the focus is no longer on aerobic capacity and building up your easy pace. The focus has switched to, we are working a different system. We are working a lactate threshold system. We are working a VO2 max system. We are doing race specific pace work for the race that we are training for. The goal of that interval workout is to work that different system. That doesn't mean though, that aerobic capacity is left at the door by definition, any work that you do aerobically, you know, up until you reach your anaerobic threshold Any work that you do where you can burn oxygen as part of your fuel creation, your energy creation process in your cells does at at, on some level work your aerobic capacity. It's not an either or. If you are doing lactate threshold intervals where you're doing, you know, a two-mile warm-up, 10 minutes of lactate threshold pace, five minutes at recovery jog, 10 minutes of lactate threshold pace, and then three miles you know, recovery, cool down, you've actually done just a crap ton of aerobic, easy pace work interspersed with your lactate threshold work as well. Just because the focus of that workout is lactate threshold doesn't mean you aren't also working your aerobic system, you're building your building aerobic capacity in other parts of the workout. And you are also to some degree, also working on building aerobic capacity in your lactate threshold, uh, periods as well, just not to the same focus, not with the same priority or intensity, or, you know, the, when you're in your lactate threshold effort zone, your primary focus is your lactate threshold system. You will get some aerobic capacity, you know, building benefits as well. But like I said, in that lactate threshold workout, you are doing a lot of aerobic capacity building work in the other parts of the workout. And most interval workouts Most speed work is like this. And if you are a person who's kind of getting up into higher mileage land, or maybe you are starting to train more seriously for shorter race distances, like the five or the 10 K by doing plans that are 40 or 50 or 60 miles a week, you may have noticed that you have speed work days where the actual speed work itself, the, the the distance that you run at your fast paces might only be two, three, four miles but your total mileage for the workout is like 10 miles right so the remaining miles for that workout are aerobic capacity building aerobic endurance building easy zone miles so you might have 200 meter intervals of the track that only add up to two and a half miles of actual fast running and then you have seven and a half additional miles that you'd either do as a war you know part of your warm-up part of your recovery in between your intervals and part of your of your cooldown that is also part of your aerobic capacity building. Uh, it's you. I know we say, "Oh, most workouts have one specific purpose," and this is true. But you can also, if you if you've been running for a while and have the ability to do so, based on how sophisticated that your system has become, you can sometimes also add on aerobic capacity building to harder workouts and get the benefits of both. So that's kind of like a brief primer on how intervals can be used. In general, you are getting aerobic capacity benefits, aerobic base building benefits from your interval workout in your, you know, easy effort, your warm up, your cool down, your recovery intervals, uh, in between the hard stuff, but if you are currently doing run walk intervals as a way to stay in your easy zone for your easy effort runs, all you're doing is working on your aerobic capacity. And that's OK. That's fantastic. That's exactly where you should be. If your heart rate cannot sustain a running pace for, you know, and stay in your easy zone, um, then, yes, you should include walking intervals in order to help build up your aerobic capacity to be able to at some point in the future sustain a running pace while in your easy zone. That's all part of the process. And our last question today is about foot care and also about blisters. So blisters. Oh man. I was specifically asked about my foot care routine. uh, And I don't have one except to keep my toenails nice and trim. Uh, (laughs) So I don't, you know, in terms of, of cosmetically caring for my feet, I do not do anything beyond except making sure my toenails are nice and trimmed. I have developed some calluses on my big toes from running. Um, I occasionally paint my toenails when I remember. So in terms of foot care, I mean, if you are, like getting pedicures or, you know, for your feet in a, in, a, in a way that makes them, you know, look good and feel good, Go ahead and do that. I know for some people that is, you know, moisturizing or wearing moisturizing socks at night, like the special moisture socks, or maybe you do get regular pedicures or, um, you know, maybe it's something where you have your feet looked after by a podiatrist if you're worried about corns or bunions or that sort of thing. So, you know, I personally, the only full care routine that I have to share with you is to cut your toenails regularly. Don't let them get long. That sucks. (laughs) But... For blisters, if you are regularly getting blisters, um, make sure that you are not wearing, there's a couple things. Don't wear cotton socks at all. Like don't wear socks that even have contain a width of cotton. That is a huge mistake. Cotton does not wick. Cotton gets heavy and very, very um, microscopically rough. It's like sandpaper. Cotton sucks. Do not wear cotton socks. Please, please, please do not wear cotton socks when you run. If you are uh, wearing running socks, running specific socks that are not cotton, and you find yourself getting blisters often from your running shoes, um, those shoes might not be the best shoe for you, either because it's a brand where it just doesn't fit you correctly, or maybe it's the wrong size. Maybe the shoe is too large, or maybe it's too narrow, or maybe the toe bed is not quite wide enough for you. Blisters should not be a normal part of your existence for most people. And I will say there's a couple like little caveats. Of course, it depends on where the blisters are. If you're getting blisters on the back of your heel or on any part of the sole of your foot, especially your forefoot, Or if you're getting blisters underneath your big toes specifically, or on the outer edges of your pinky toe, kind of like where those hot spots are, where those, those are not normal per se. Like that is indicating that there is a part of your shoe that's rubbing against your foot in a way that is causing the blister. And there are shoes out there for you maybe that don't rub in the same way. However, I tend to get uh, little, especially in the summer and especially when I'm doing really high mileage, I do tend to get little blisters, um, at the tops of my little toes, usually the middle ones that are, they don't hurt. They're just kind of there. And then they like eventually kind of resolve themselves. So again, it depends on if the blister is causing you problems are not. Like I said, those little blisters that get at the top of my toes, uh, they don't really, they don't bother me. They do not hurt. They don't bug me. They're just, they are there because I am running more and I'm usually getting sweatier. So more moisture, and more friction increases the likelihood of getting blisters. So that's why those are there. But if you're regularly getting blisters on any part of the soles of your foot or underneath your big toe or at the corners, you know, the outside of your pinky toe area or the heel of your foot and you are not wearing cotton socks, it might be just be something else of the way that the shoe is shaped. There are some, and also it could be that your shoe hasn't been broken in yet. So there are a couple models of shoe, uh, specifically my trail shoes that when I first started wearing them, I was getting blisters underneath my big toe, like in that kind of you know, between your actual toe and your foot. I was getting mild blisters there, but uh because I didn't want to buy a different pair of trail shoes, I just kept wearing them and eventually the problem resolved itself. So it also could be an issue of breaking in your shoes. If you are wearing the same shoes and have been wearing the same shoes for a while and are newly getting blisters from this old pair of shoes, well that's probably a sign that the shoes are time it's time to retire the shoes. There you have it. That is everything I have for this week. I am so excited about these questions. I am so excited to answer your questions next week as well. And I do have my very first podcast guest coming up. We're recording this weekend. I'm recording Courtney Burling, who is better known as eat well, run better on Instagram. She is a dietitian. We're going to talk about running nutrition and, oh, all the things related with nutrition and food and fueling and how to do it and where the pitfalls are and all that kind of stuff. So stay tuned for that. My very, very first guest. I'm very excited. Other than that, happy running. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Don't forget, you can always find me on Instagram at running explained or at my website, running If you have a question you'd like to have answered, you can submit it in my stories every Monday or email me at elizabeth at runningexplained.co. That's E-L-I-S-A-B-E-T-H at runningexplained.co. Until next time, happy running! This content is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you have regarding a medical condition.